Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. In 2020, events have yet again shone a light on racial inequalities across the globe. Australia is not an exception. Twenty years on from the reconciliation walks of the year 2000, this nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind and in the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. I asked the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. Mate, this is just impossible. Too many people were confused. Uh, You bet you are. Uh, You bet I am. I have always believed in miracles. That's not a policy. Not now. Not ever. I mean... These comments are completely inappropriate. I'm sure she's right. But I ain't spending any time on it. How pathetic. You're a classic space invader. Disgusting, mud-sucking creatures. You should be ashamed of yourselves. Oh, fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. Taste of democracy, very good. G'day, Mark Kenny here with another Democracy Sausage and my thanks to the dangerously competent Martin Pierce, who held the tongs while I was away for a couple of weeks. Anyway, back in the capital now and speaking to you from ground zero of the war on the sausage itself. That's right, here in the capital, right at the heart of Australia's democratic machinery, the forthcoming territory election will occur sans sausage, which is to say polling stations will not provide voters with the humble stale bread and burnt offal nourishment now customary in Australian elections. On top of all the other freedoms stripped from us now, thanks to COVID, the ACT Electoral Commissioner Damien Cantwell has kiboshed fundraising barbecues at polling places. It could be the snag that broke the camel's back. (laughs) I predict well-ordered riots in the street. (laughs) What will be left of Australian culture that already taken our footy, even a hot pie has become unobtainable, the coalition blithely waved goodbye to Holden's a few years ago, And who could forget that Labor wanted to take your ute and your weekend? Well, at least according to Michaelia Cash anyway. More seriously, the uncommon mood of national consensus noted in the early months of COVID has collapsed with the Federation arguably looking more noisily divided and dysfunctional than before. And in Europe, America, Indonesia and India, the infection rate is back on the rise, prompting a real, well-founded fear of more deadly second-wave infections. As always, we have a first-rate group of scholars to toss these issues around, starting with the School of Politics and International Relations lecturer, Dr. Maria Taflaga. Hi there, Maria. Hello, how are you? I'm well, well, comparatively speaking, at this stage. Well rested, hopefully. Yes, uh, that's right. I, I was I was skulking around the uh, the border of a northern republic, uh, you know, one that's recl- reclusive and uh, prickly about criticism. And I know you're thinking I was near North Korea, but no, I was in fact near Queensland, but not in it, of course, because you can't go into Queensland at the moment. Well, I mean, you know, I don't think they'd want you anyway, so, <laughs> uh, you know, that- 
They don't want anyone. We have many Queensland listeners, of course, and uh, and they are all highly intelligent, uh, valued people, as indeed are all listeners to Democracy Sausage. Historian Frank Bongiorno, head of the ANU School of History, is always a welcome contributor on this podcast. Welcome, Frank. Hi, Mark. And medical specialist, cardiologist and clinical senior lecturer at the ANU Medical School, Dr. Anna Greta Hunter, is also with us again. Welcome back, Anna Greta. Thanks for having me, Is Mark. this indeed welcome back or is it uh, – because I know we've spoken before, but it may have been in no, our – No, I've um, done the sausage once before last right. year. Yep. Right. Well, that's my bad memory. I know we've spoken before and I, yep. I certainly remember doing Ask Policy Forum with you as well. <laughs> well there thank was you a, very much for having me today. <laughs> there was a bit of drinking on that one, so I don't remember what how it ended really. But uh, That might be the one I'm remembering, yep, the Friday <laughs> afternoon beer, beer podcast. That's right. Um, now – the Guardian reported this week that a second wave in Europe is now a real concern. You're a medical specialist, so I'm going to lean on you for your, your um, sort of opinion about this. How far do you think we are through this? I mean, there was a sense that that um, we were making progress, obviously, in June before we saw the second wave infections in Victoria. And now that seemed, you know, the, the, the state seems to be prog- progressing there towards being able to... Um, lift those restrictions, but in so many other places in the world it's going backwards. And I know the PM was asked about this by Catherine Murphy in her quarterly essay, um, and he answered that uh, he, he'd like to think we're through the worst of it, but he just can't say, which I think is a, a completely legitimate answer to give because no one really can. But what's your instinct? Well, I'm finding myself agreeing with the Prime Minister, which is uh, very uncommon in, in my experience. <laughs> The coronavirus pandemic remains a significant challenge, is my uh, feeling. And I thought uh, it's worth starting by saying thank you to the Victorians because I think in Australia we're still uh, very much at the potential risk for the virus and we've watched that happen through the Victorian experience, particularly in Melbourne. Um, and I think we really, as a as a country, could be really grateful for the work that's been put in in Victoria. Um, they've protected us here in Canberra and in Sydney and in Brisbane and around the country. We've been protected against the worst potential for this virus by the actions that have been taken uh, by the Victorian government and by the Victorian people, uh, obviously with the economic and social and psychological impact, which I think will resonate. Uh, and I think it's really important that we outside Melbourne remember to be grateful for the work that they've put in uh, because they're going to need some help from us as we all try and recover. But the global picture reminds us that pandemics continue. And so there are people who talk about a virus fizzling out. And we saw this with uh, with MERS and with the, with SARS uh, in the past, that the virus just seemed to, to peter out at some point. And I guess that remains a potential point of optimism. Uh, there's a lot being put on the vaccine or on the potential for vaccine. And so we will see if that arrives. But I think without a vaccine, we're looking at a significantly changed way to live in order to really control the health impact and the economic impacts that we know that go with that uh, for, for potentially years to come. Mm. Yeah, the, the point you make about it fizzling out, I mean, Donald Trump was actually saying that at one stage, and we'll come back to Donald Trump a bit later to talk about um, you know, the significance of the, the Woodward revelations about uh, um, you know, yeah. what he knew and when he knew it. If I can put it in Woodward language, I think it's uh, important to remember. SARS took four years to "quote unquote" fizzle out. Um, the MERS virus, similarly, was circulating for, for not for for a couple of months, but for many years uh, before it also seemed to disappear. Yeah. Um, and so when we talk about a potential virus for uh, just, just going away at some point in time, which we can optimistically hope for, um, that process will still take quite a lot longer. 
Yeah, if, if that's the way we get through it, that, it, that by it fizzling out, we're, we're certainly nowhere near halfway, halfway point of that. That's right. Maria, it's really interesting, isn't it? The Guardian um, sort of quantifying the, the situation in Europe um, has said, this is the, the UK Guardian, Britain's viral reproduction rate or R number exceeded one for the first time since March and one study found it at, it is at 1.7 in England. Um, there, there, there was uh, 9,843 9, new cases in France uh, in a single day in the last couple of days. Spain had a day of 12,000 infections. Um, so we're seeing the, the dreaded second wave uh, in effect. Um, what do we learn about the way governments are able to – what do we learn about kind of the restrictions that are able to be put on, the pressure that comes on governments – the lifting of them, and then the ability to put them back on again. Boris Johnson, for example, is saying that he will not brook a second period of lockdown in Britain, but he's announced this um, prohibition on any gatherings of more than six people uh, from, uh, you know, the, not from the same household. Uh, I mean, that, that that just seems to me to be sort of a, a strange declaration to make that you're not going to have a second lockdown, even if the numbers suggest that is the only way of getting the, the virus under control? There were sort of two things, I guess, here. One is, I suppose, um, Boris Johnson's own, I guess, political preferences and uh, the reality of having to manage what is a quite an unstable conservative party uh, at the moment um, and the reality of real-world events. And uh, as we have seen in many jurisdictions around the world, once you sort of lose control of the virus, you see a decline in economic activity anyway because people take mm. matters into their own hands. It is sort of it – is, it is a bit puzzling to me that there is like this sort of, I guess, air of unreality around some of the things that some political leaders have said in relation to the virus given that they've experienced the first wave and experienced the – the problems of effectively trying to manage um, a contagious virus, which is deadly but not as deadly as, say, SARS or MERS, um, which, you know, has some pluses and minuses um, in terms of its capacity to replicate through the population. But I think I guess what it has sort of taught us is that governments don't necessarily learn lessons very well and Boris Johnson isn't necessarily a very cautious politician and in trying to sort of, I guess, boost the, the confidence of the British people, he has potentially kind of left himself open to being criticised when events sort of force him to potentially lock down as this sort of gets out of control, particularly as the weather is getting colder in the UK mm. now, which means the gatherings inside are pretty much the only viable Option. Yeah, it's a very good point. I wonder if we're trying to shape a narrative around a biological process. Okay, you want to put a political narrative of let's get back out there and get back to work and make things exactly grow again. Happening. But we've got a biological process. We've got a pandemic that's underway. And so matching those two things up is really complicated. There's probably some analogies in climate change. The um, situation that, that that we see in Victoria, for example, it seems like Dan Andrews is very well aware that being in the second lockdown is a pretty much an all or nothing situation for him. You can't really um, consider a third one, so you have to do it right this time and you have to get as much compliance. Well, you know, on, on the face of it, I think he's being driven by the fact that he is considering a third one. That is what a third one would be like. Um, mm, yeah. It would probably destroy his government, I imagine. And the kinds of tolerance, I guess, that 
the Victorian population has displayed so far. I mean, the polling tells us that there's broad support for the measures that are being taken. I mean, clearly, you know, you'd find flouting at the edges. There are protests of very small groups, but broadly speaking, the polls and just the state of the streets make it pretty clear that, that you know, um, people are, are, are effectively observing the rules. Would, would they be so tolerant a third time? I mean, it's pretty clear at the moment that his government um, is being subjected to a pretty fierce set of attacks from the federal government. It's a joint project, clearly, with News Corp. Um, and I mean, I think there's plenty of evidence of that being pretty concerted too. So, you know, I think he realises that it's got to be done right this time. And his caution, which, you know, I think probably does look um, excessive to many people and may well be excessive, is probably understandable in the context of, again, what's happening in Europe. I mean, the, the, the figures, as you say, from France, for instance, the other day with about 10,000 infections in a single day. I mean, I presume this is a consequence of a kind of misspent summer in, in Europe where, you know, you had plenty of people movement, as I understand it, you know, mm. holidays in Spain and all the rest of it. Um, and the Victorian government doesn't want to see that happen here. Um, so I think India had 97,000, I saw on the news last night, 97,000 yeah. new infections detected in one night. In one night. One, and, and, you know, one 24-hour period. Yeah, and it kind of echoes the, That's incredible. the Spanish flu, of course, which exactly. you know, some of the estimates now have the deaths from that at 50 to 100 million, but with most of them actually in Asia in the, the, the sort of the latter stages, if you like, which, of course, was also when Australia experienced it yeah. during 1919. So, um, yeah, long way to go and really difficult for governments to manage. I mean, I think most of the other state governments know that, you know, they're but for the grace of God go I. Yeah. So they're, they're pretty reluctant to put the boot in. But it is striking, I think, that the federal government has now gone down that path and quite frankly, I think, is is looking at how to manage this politically, in a politically advantageous way. I think that the, the, the next election is already looming in the minds of, 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 um, well, certainly of, of key figures in the federal government. Yeah, well, it's probably only, uh, probably only a year away. Look, you've got family in, in Victoria. I certainly have. I'm not sure. I do we'll, too, yeah. We'll yep, do, right? Absolutely. So uh, it, it's interesting when you talk to family and friends in Victoria, even people who have been um, cynical about the scope of these uh, these restrictions, particularly the curfew, which I think is probably the hardest single thing to justify, and it turns out that... You know, it wasn't actually recommended by the police and it wasn't actually recommended by the, the chief health officer and, and, and associated experts. So it really is a kind of a, it really originated from the premier, uh, from the premier, it seems. But it's interesting to see that even those people who are cynical or have, have, have been grumbling about the restrictions are now of the view. This has been my experience anyway that they should not come out too early, that they don't want to have spent, you know, effectively 12 weeks of hard yakka. Um, only to cut it short through impatience when they still haven't really completely gone on top of infections, particularly those with uh, with an unknown origin. No, I mean, the numbers that we're seeing at the moment, rumbling around 40 to 60 a day, that's what it was like for a few weeks before this major outbreak in Victoria. And so you know that if you leave that alone and you don't do something radical even at that low level, um, that, that it can easily start to snowball in the way that it has before. Um, and so, but, but, but I, they have I, better I've, tracing now, better contact tracing I, than I they did then. It does sound like they've invested significantly in that, mm. doesn't it? It really mm. does sound like they've made some major head, headway into uh, improved contact tracing uh, in Victoria.
But um, I know uh, I have my family and my friends in Victoria that are the same as your comments, that um, everybody, uh, that the prospect of doing this again is is extraordinary. So it, it, would, be, um, well, it would be a massive undertaking, I think, to, to ask Victoria to lock down again in the future. Yeah, yeah. I have, I have family and friends who are mentally really struggling because yep. they live alone. And uh, whilst they're sometimes like quite furious at the government because it's not always clear why decisions are made, that there is an underlying understanding that, you know, if we get it right this time, I won't have to do this again. And that's essential. Yeah. I mean, I have a close relative who I'd regard as having very conservative views, quite frankly. Um, <laughs> and um, I'm just struck by the, the level of support and acceptance. Um, it's not even a grudging acceptance, I think. It's just this is what it is. Um, and I was, I've been a bit surprised by that. In mm. some ways I expected more complaint. But, I mean, the complaints are, are happening, um, but they seem very theatrical, very orchestrated um, and kind of lacking – a political seriousness, I think, because there isn't really any kind of alternative plan that's kind of accompanying all that complaining coming from, for instance, the Victorian Liberal Party and so on. I think um, what is interesting is, you know, listening to sort of um, talkback kind of forums, um, the people who seem to be the most distressed are usually small business people because, you know, you can sort of see that their businesses are in serious sort of strife. And I presume this is in part what the Victorian um, liberal liberals are kind of picking up because that's their these are their people and the budget is coming and um, and the reality is is that you know as we've talked about many times before the federal government is ultimately going to be responsible for the economy and so I think is trying to um, shift as much blame to the Victorian uh, government for what will na- will be. Um, you know, an exogenous shock really to the Australian economy um, and to sort of effectively try to sort of dissociate themselves from all of the consequences of this crisis or as many as possible so they don't have to um, eat that um, proverbial sandwich. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. No, no. No, they're perfectly okay to uh, reference proverbial sandwiches on, on, on a podcast called Democracy Sausage. That's true. It's, yeah. We should have more food-based analogies. Yeah. yeah look, it, it is really interesting, um, the point uh, you were making and, and that Frank was making before as well about levels of acceptance. So I was reading um, on the weekend um, the comments of uh, one Wolfgang Merkel from Berlin's Humboldt University. He's a political scientist. And he was talking about this this issue of of, of what people are uh, how, how life has changed and how governments are behaving differently. I'll just read you this short quote of his. He says, "In a world that is increasingly marked by insecurities through migration movements, climate change, or global pandemics, we are seeing a high preparedness to trade to trade some basic rights in exchange for stability." And that's interesting, I think, and, and I think I agree with that. It seems to be observable fact uh, around the place that people are concerned about this meta threat that we face mm-hmm. uh, and there is a lot of uncertainty in those other areas as well and people are looking for purposeful government. And Right at the moment, they're not particularly concerned or they're putting in the secondary category um, some freedoms that they've had before. It's astute, isn't it, because it, it, it also presents what's going on at the moment 
as broadly consistent with what we know about what's been happening in political cultures, obviously, for some time, you know. So you can see the way in which a certain attitude to border control and immigration would feed into, you know, a kind of a, a, a reasonably relaxed attitude to the kinds of controls that governments have been imposing to mm. deal with the pandemic. So, yeah, it's, it's an interesting way of looking at it because it doesn't see a disjuncture. It actually sees a kind of continuity in how people are, are dealing with these I, I agree. Issues. I mean, yeah, yeah. I think this is the story of our times. I mean, if you just look at the sort of proliferation of security legislation since um, the early 2000s, we sort of see another sort of set of trade-offs between rights and stability. Um, and if you think about it, right, like conservatism is an extremely successful political philosophy because it's so mutable and ultimately it, it is essentially an exchange of security or stability for, you know, whatever it is perceived to be at the time. That that is that is a threat. And um I think that was a very interesting insight from the recent quarterly essay, which I think you'll be interviewing Catherine Murphy about soon. Which Indeed, was- and it will constitute the the next Democracy Sausage Extra. So people who are wanting to uh, hear that, they can either do so live tomorrow night, that, that is Tuesday night, we're recording this on a Monday morning, um, but it will also be coming out as the Democracy Sausage Extra on Thursday. So thanks for that plug. It's you're welcome. You're welcome. Useful. And so what is interesting about what, what Murph says in, in her essay is that um, she sort of discusses, and perhaps you could ask her more about this because I wanted to know more. Uh, well, i my which, pen ready. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, which was that Scott Morrison um, was sort of puzzled by the way that I guess, you know, the left or progressives or whatever uh, word you want to use um, – has sort of framed things like job seeker and job keeper as you know some road to Damascus for the for the coalition, um, in terms of like rediscovering society to 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 um, reference Thatcher, uh, but really that it was a conservative response that you know stability was at threat, social disorder was in prospect. And I think that is a really interesting and unsurprising when you think about it insight. But that could do with a far far more um, unpacking. And I suppose that is what is interesting ultimately about the kinds of risks that someone like Boris Johnson is kind of taking um, in relation to sort of saying like we won't have another uh, lockdown even though um, given uh, that England had never really done a good job of containing it in the first place. No, they and, stuffed it up to begin with. And didn't really <laughs> – it's not like they – it's not like they – Change lots of things to help kind of manage it in the in the future, you know, and and then in, introduce policies that encourage the movement of people from regions to to cities. That you know, sort of, I guess, is it just wishful thinking, or it's very odd. But there's this libertarian aspect, isn't there, that that sits on the right, that mm. that sits in a incredibly uneasy relationship with the kind of conservatism and desire for stability that you're talking about. And that's one of the most interesting things about this moment, isn't it? The ways in which those two strands are kind of sitting there, um, often found within the same government. Um, and most often. Very often. Uh, certainly in the British the British government, we find in the US administration. And um, it, it's not entirely clear what kinds of policy outcomes you get from that sort of interaction. I mean, in the British case, incredibly unclear, I would have thought at the moment. Well, yeah, yeah. policies all over the place in a yeah. whole range of areas. Yeah. But yeah, it's interesting also how it has laid bare, you know, that, that libertarian strand has laid bare uh, this through this crisis, its relationship with expertise, with science um, and with the academy, basically. Um, 
because there's a tendency, particularly on the sort of lunar right of this debate, a tendency to see the, the, the pandemic itself as some sort of conspiracy, as some sort of massive overreach by the state, uh, by by um, by people with you know university degrees, uh, by people who are experts, and they're seeing it in this same frame almost, Anna Greta, as as the climate, climate change, change thing. Yep, absolutely. No, I'll come back to what I said earlier about trying to squash your political narrative into the biology of what's going on. And, you know, you desperately want with the pandemic for it to be okay and for it to not be killing people and not be leaving people with uh, long-term health impacts or particularly devastating your health system. And so it'd be nice if that was the case. And if you can run a hard enough narrative, that, that's what people, what some of our politicians around the world, including Donald Trump, I think, are trying to do. Um, and with climate change, it's just that the velocity is different, okay? With the pandemic, we're measuring it in terms of weeks That's or days. True. That's a really and good And with point. climate change, well, we might be seeing it now in a year-to-year -year sense. We have previously seen it in a decade-to-decade -decade sense. And so it's that velocity of change that I think that leaves us behind. And it makes it easier to squash your political narrative into uh, away from the science, away from the biology or, of, of what is actually going on. We'll be back to continue this discussion in just a moment. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Each week we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your pods. Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts. Welcome back. Just before the break, we were talking about Scott Morrison's uh, assessment really of JobKeeper and JobSeeker, or at least Maria Taflaga was making the point that um, Morrison has, has justified those programs as being quite consistent with conservative philosophy because they were about uh, maintaining the order, protecting the stability of, of the system rather than being radical experiments in, in, in social adventurism or whatever. But if that's the case, Anna Greta, that test for conservatism also applies to climate change, does it not? And yet we've seen such resistance from conservative parties to, uh, particularly in Australia, to uh, to being any sort of uh, having any sort of forward leaning position on it. Absolutely, and I look, perhaps it comes back down in partly to the tension across your conservative party there between people who are small L liberals who do take a conservative view and who for whom it makes a tremendous amount of sense when you look at the economic or environmental modelling to take early action on climate change. And I think you find those people even in the current current government within uh, within Liberal Party structures. But at the other side of that is the uh, perhaps more libertarian arm. And as you were talking about that tension, I was wondering whether the koala problem in New South Wales might be an example between the libertarian uh, side of, of our politics and a more conservative view or small L um, liberal perspective of actually uh, taking the safer route. Well, just for the record, the so-called koala problem in New South <laughs> Wales is actually there aren't enough koalas. I mean, don't tell the Nats. Yep. Uh, 
because the gnats think there is too much koala habitat or at least they don't want to have farmers, yep. you know, required to uh, to keep it. Yep. Um, but again, a conservative view of that is perhaps to protect what what we, yeah. we think is a valuable resource. Um, and so there's a there's a there's no reason why the politics need to be so divided on climate change. And you see that that's one of the differences. In, I think in the United Kingdom, mm. exactly. well, you wouldn't think. I mean, the word conservatism and conservation they're not that they're far, not far apart, apart. For, for for good reason. Yep. And yet they seem to be in a, at the political opposite ends of the of the spectrum. You know, for the purposes of uh, the practice of politics. I mean, you know, I mean, you're absolutely um, right. And of course, uh, Margaret Thatcher very famously uh, sort of said that we should give uh, the climate the benefit of the doubt. She had the benefit of having a chemistry degree um, and being able to read, uh, you know, um, uh, scientific papers um, and uh, was was conservative in this in this sort of principle. And, Frank, I'd kind of be interested to know what you kind of think about this. Like I think that obviously like there are lots of like similar cross-currents um, in political kind of thinking, you know, interpretations of laborism or conservatism or libertarianism or et cetera, um, in the Anglo sphere, there's obviously like, you know, these cross currents. We share languages. We share a, a core British kind of culture. Um, but, you know, I guess like the kind of color or tenor of some of these discussions in Australia is sort of linked to the resource outputs, um, of this country and, and representation. But like also this sort of idea about, this fear of deindustrialization on the right, and then just good old-fashioned um, developmentism, like developmentism. I mean, how do you kind of see these kinds of like this sort of tension between environment and industry and 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 jobs? You know that real people do have developed over time. Yeah, I mean, I think you you point to the influence that the resources sector has in Australia, and particularly on the. You know, all of the, the, the major political parties, really, certainly Labor, Liberal and National Party. And I think, you know, that, that is one of the distinctive characteristics, isn't it, of, of, of Australian politics, certainly as it's been practiced probably the last several decades. But, you yeah. know, with that reinvigorated role of the resources sector since they won that really quite historic controversy with the, the, the Rudd government in 2010 over a mining tax, um, Otherwise, you'd say what's interesting about, I mean, you talk about Anglosphere, but, you know, there's clearly been a divergence, hasn't there, in the Anglosphere between a, a number of countries where the centre, the political centre has kind of held in the last six to seven years over issues like immigration, for instance, and those countries, the United Kingdom, the United States, where it didn't. And Australia surely belongs to a group that I'd imagine includes uh, New Zealand, Canada, um, on that kind of, you know, y y yes, you get the revolt from the, the far right and all the rest of it, but not in the kind of disruptive way that that has occurred with Brexit and with Trumpism. And it, it's those countries where the centre has held, even with conservative governments in power, that have done better during this pandemic. They've, they've found it much easier to manage. Um, they've generally been able to get decent levels of, of social compliance. The, the, the numbers are simply better. And then you've got the US and the UK out there really as outliers in the Anglosphere, if you like, that have, have done really, really poorly. I mean, the resources stuff maps onto that, I think, in a kind of difficult way. And I think it's simply to do with the structure of the Australian economy and the extraordinary um, capacity, um, really partly to do with the way in which political donations and so on work in this country uh, of, 
of that sector to, to exercise influence over the major political parties, influence totally out of proportion really to their capacity to employ people, um, uh, you know, and a whole range of things, they're, they're, even their overall economic importance. Mm. Mm. I mean, I always find myself struggling mm. with it. I, I can't yeah. make rational argument out of that economic bias. Yeah. I, I mean, and I know that it's a major driver, um, but it doesn't make intellectual mm. sense. Mm. Yep. Well, does it, is, is some of the story in the short electoral cycle. Uh, we're talking about people who... Uh, are employed, say, in the coal sector, you know, people employed in coal, coal mining industry in seats like those held by um, Joel Fitzgibbon, for example. Um, Labor has to have a story to tell people about how it's transitioning. And it needs to be more than just a story. It needs to be an actual material program of how it's transitioning people out of that. And at the moment... But there are great narratives that are available in that space. I mean, you can take the example of transitioning away from the steel industry in New South Wales. Um, but the potential, if you were given an opportunity to be employed uh, in, a coal, in a new coal-fired power station or you were given a job option in a new renewable energy facility, which one of those two would you think would be best for your community? And I think if people went out there with that narrative, that it's a relatively straightforward discussion in most communities. It's. I guess it's. It all comes down to the way these things are ultimately framed. The, you know, the way we discuss climate change in this country is often in in binaries, and it's about deficits. You know, like these are all the things you're going to lose. We don't really discuss it in terms of these are the things you're you're going to gain. And I think perhaps something that um, we don't discuss enough is that the types of people work. Sorry, the types of work people do is connected to their self-image, right, mm-hmm. and yep. how they live right. and their their, their social yep. identities. And, you know, we've seen that actually play out in the way that stimulus has been distributed across the country, you know. So, like, we're giving money to the arts. This will help the guys that do the lights yeah, right. at the theatre show, right, you know, for, <laughs> as one example. Um, mm. So, uh, yeah, I think and that's they, sort of – And they didn't give money to the arts to, to away after yeah. it was needed. I, I think yeah. – I'm not sure a single cent has been spent Yeah, yet. that's, that's – yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm not – Completely up to date on that, but a few weeks ago, that was certainly the case. That was certainly the case, yeah. Yeah, it's a kind of this, I suppose it's a a long standing kind of cultural orientation, isn't it, towards the the man, and it is a man who works with his hands in a labouring job of some kind, whether it was, you know, shearing in the 19th century or coal mining in the 20th or whatever, construction, um, as a real job. The real economy, the stuff that really matters the most. Well, there's a building um, at the end of it or yeah. a, a tailings pile. Mm. Yeah. But and, but at the same time, you don't want to be too flippant about it because uh, your point about people's social identity being very closely tied up with what they do and the community in which they live is, is absolutely right. And it's I think it's a big stretch for people in the city to be arguing to people who are living in these regional towns that are based on coal mining. It's a, it's a big thing to be asking them to essentially sign up to the death of their own communities. No, it's the value a transition. So that's the lang- it's the language of death of their community. It doesn't have to be the death of their community. It's a transition of yeah, the community. There wouldn't be much yeah. reason for having some of those communities in the places I, they I are. I disagree. I mean, places like Narandra in the uh, Riverina, they've just they built a new uh, solar farm there. Uh, it's a great place. It's one of the sure, first, but the constru- it's the first new industry to be developed in that area for, for, for many, many years. Yes, but there are a lot of construction jobs in solar farms like that, but there aren't that many jobs in, you know, that it just doesn't compare mm. on a sort of a job for job basis with uh, the old industries. 
And so we need to think about how we're going to transition those communities and we need to be working with those communities in ways that make make it still a great place to live. And, you know, we know that the health impacts of living near a coal-fired power station are significant Mm. and so there's a lovely health narrative that fits in there when you're helping a community to move towards something that's better. I mean, I'm going to take it back to a really rudimentary point. I've been looking at the interim findings of the Bushfire Royal Commission In this country, we can't use the words climate change, okay? In that whole documentation that's been put forward for discussion, we talk about the changing climate, we talk about the fact that it will be getting hotter, but we're still absolutely terrified, particularly at a federal government level, of using the phrase climate change. If we can't name it, we definitely can't adapt to it, and we're certainly not going to be mitigating anything uh, in the near future. And so I think it actually goes back to a really fundamental idea of being able to actively discuss what's in front of us, what we all lived through last summer. And not Notwithstanding the very valid point you made before about the, the the problem being or the comparison being one of velocity, you know, between climate change and the pandemic, Frank, do you think there's scope for this uh, that that problem that Arna Greta was just talking about, that inability to sort of square up to climate change as a problem? Do you think there's some scope for improvement in that as a result of the pandemic? I mean, as a result of uh, having experts around government advising them? So an optimistic view would say, well. You know, the political class and particularly the coalition um, have basically found themselves dependent on scientific knowledge. Um, you know, whereas, yeah, 18 months ago, you know, they went for that kind of populist rhetoric of there are too many experts around and it's a job of politicians to run the show. But Some might say they were actually hiding behind the experts <laughs> because, let's face it, no one knew what was going on. And so yeah. I'll go to the guy in the white coat or the woman in the white coat. Um, Mostly guys. <laughs> you mean during the pan? During, yeah, yeah. I know they yeah. mostly are, but they're not all. They're not all guys. But that's it. the, the mm. chief medical officer in Queensland, for mm. example, is so at a state un- level, there are women. Yeah. Um, at a yeah. federal level, uh, the the chief, deputy chief medical officer who's in charge of mental health is female, mm. but we don't see a lot of her. Um, it's they're all men yeah. aside from that. Yeah, I'm sorry, Frank, I interrupted sorry. you. No, I mean I, I think whether tra- whether that translates to to the whole issue of climate change, I think it is is difficult. It's partly a temporal issue, isn't it? That you know. We, we, everyone knows what the, one of the key issues and problems around the politics of climate change are, and and, and it's that um, you are effectively on a three-year election cycle, um, and governments are reluctant to make hard decisions that actually are about what's going to be happening in ten, fifteen, twenty, yeah. and fifty years time. That's it, I right mean, there. That's the yeah. pro- that, that's it. You've yeah. sort of distilled it perfectly, I think, and 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 therefore it becomes easier to fudge for the next three years and and provide mm. voters with a. Um, a soothing story of, of delusion mm. about the ongoing viability of coal mining, for example, off into the indefinite future. Yeah, by way of contrast, the pandemic thrusts seriousness mm. on the politicians. Yeah. If we don't do this this week, next week, we'll be in the period, yeah. basically. And, and we were yeah. talking about the UK yeah. before. Yeah. It, it's shambolic handling of, yeah. uh, of uh, the um, pandemic threat, you know, taking too long to get anywhere and then, you know, having a lockdown and then, and then coming out of it and now saying they're not going to have a lockdown. I mean, that kind of thing is, you know, has been a disaster for them. So, Well, yeah, I mean, there's plenty of um, behavioural psychology that shows humans are really bad at um, factoring in long-term um, risks. Um, apparently there are even statistically significant differences based on the grammar of certain languages and the way they treat the future, um, and which correlates with savings, uh, which is a cool fact, but not the point I wanted to make. Um, um, but it is I, cool. But it is yeah, really interesting. It is, it is really yep. interesting. Um, but I guess, I guess what is sort of 
you know, I think that's true. Like the, the, the three-year cycle is definitely part of it, um, you know, and I think the point Frank was making before about the intersection between, you know, obviously economic in- interests and electoral representation, the conversation Mark and Aragneta were just had you know sort of distills the problem into a into an into a nutshell and i keep thinking about the 1970s in the united kingdom where everyone can kind of see the writing on the wall for these industrial towns that can't compete but you know um it's it was too difficult politically to take the hard um steps to to sort of transition uh people out of one type of lifestyle which is deeply culturally embedded and the net result is catastrophe and I guess that's what I actually really kind of worry about like not only the um, like ecological consequences for us but for these uh, communities um, if if you know if we we aren't able to reframe and emotionally reconnect the way we talk about this uh, calamity this potential calamity away from calamity into a set of opportunities and that is that is really very difficult and it's kind of interesting in the UK that nexus between climate and the economy isn't isn't there because they're much more interested in sort of innovation and all this kind of stuff because they don't they don't dig up coal now right mm-hmm. they don't they don't they don't manufacture things in, in quite the same way and so they're always like very polite about um, the Australian view of climate um, science, um, you know, a bit of a twinkle in the eye, which is, you know, quite a lot for a lot of conservative politicians. Um, and But this is something that's sort of not going away. And I, I guess the thing that is sort of – I'm not really sure how we're going to kind of walk out of this uh, anytime soon in the near future. Sorry for being so depressing, everyone. Sorry. No, well, yeah. like I say, it'll be interesting <laughs> to see whether um, Scott Morrison um, – does give new thought to this in light of the um, the way he's been taking expert advice. Well, this because in the in the long term, the the answer yeah. to this really, and I suppose this is what you're saying, is to sort of despectacularize the the debate about climate change itself and move on to what you do about it. So you accept it as an unspectacular, if extremely important and worrying fact. But that seems to be where the debate is in the UK, for example. Uh, certainly, Johnson's not been. Anywhere near is kind of um, a, a, the denialist that say the man is just appointed to his UK trade board, uh, Tony Abbott, on the same question. Well, so I think it's an opportunity in the UK. It's you know, whereas here, you know, at, at, at worst you've got uh, the sort of uh, the fringe, sort of represented by people like Craig Kelly, for example. But the sort of centre of the coalition is, um, I guess, moving to a sort of minimisation strategy, a bit like gay marriage if you think about it like there was a whole bunch of people who didn't want gay marriage but realized that it was a political problem for the government and so they they found a crude solution which was the survey the postal survey um and that's i mean i think you know like if if you sort of look at the kind of rhetoric around the government like they're talking about adaptation now so rather than um you know, trying to do anything about climate change. Well, they're not because they didn't spend the money that they've got for bushfire adaptation. And I, I've been thinking a lot about the fires in the, in North America and I recognise that emotionally after the summer we had here, I had to believe that that wasn't going to happen again in the very near future. And now intellectually, there's have, we have to plan for it. It's going to happen again. We're going to have Black Summer or something that potentially is worse and that's going to be within the next decade or so. And yet they're not spending the money because I think to really invest adequately in adaptation strategies, you need to 
to start by using the words climate change. Mm. Actually, need to recognise that it is happening. It's not made up. Um, that the science is fairly conclusive, and that the modelling has shown itself to be accurate, and that that the 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 future in terms of the potential for extreme weather events is is really looking to be an exciting time for us all to be. And it's an opportunity. It's the it's the financial opportunity. So rather than talking about the death of industry, it's an extraordinary opportunity that we have right now this year for transformation for moving. But we do need to worry about those people caught in the hinge point of that change. No, no, but I'd put them centre of a transformation, an economic transformation that really puts the worker at the centre. Has to happen in real time, though. Absolutely. I mean, people can't be sort of caught up in a three or five or 12-year transition. They need to know that they're, you know. And so it's where the the hope is potentially at a local level where people are working together, and you see that happening with renewable energy projects around in regional Australia, not not in the cities. What about, uh, you mentioned the fires in, in, in the US at the moment. There's already signs that that will be politicised as a as a debate in the same way that the bushfire debate Isn't it? was politicised I mean, here. It's absolutely fascinating to watch. It's sort of contagious, and it's oh, I'm going to use this analogy again that it's about the politics trying to to really shift up, stuff a narrative alongside the biology, which is they're completely opposite. And so you see it happening in the United States that one they don't use the words climate change when they're talking about the fire, and that's what happened here in Australia. And secondly, that they they're talking already about arson, um, and you know. I've, that was the two great things here, two, weren't they? Yeah. The, the, yeah. Two, the two arguments that sort of, you know, suddenly yep. shot up on social media in no. Australia were this idea yep. that half or more of the fires were yep. started by arsonists yep. and the other the other idea was that it was all the fault of the Greenies who'd stopped yep. uh, hazard reduction burning. Yeah, absolutely. So this is a biological process. The temperatures are high and it doesn't rain anymore. And that, that, that you know, they're, they're sort of environmental facts, they're scientific facts, they're easily measurable. Um, but you can try and craft this crazy political narrative that tries to get around the science of what's going on. And it's fascinating that it's contagious, that, that, the, that the Americans are, bottle, are borrowing the model that were, were employed here in Australia over. And I, I think it was effective in Australia in November, December. I think potentially after the New Year's Eve that many of us had in Canberra and, and around this part of New South Wales, uh, it became a little bit harder to run. Um, the biology is in, is in your face. Frank, uh, can I raise with you, sort of jumping around a bit, I know, but just about the, the federation uh, in Australia. Uh, I said in the introduction that, uh, you know, there was there was a, a few months there in the early stages of this crisis where mm. we saw the federation sort of, you know, humming along in a way that it, we really hadn't seen it probably in our lifetimes, um, you know, such levels of harmony and coordination. But it really seems to have gone the other way now. Um, th- does this really give the lie to the whole national cabinet, which of course was its, you know, its most sort of, uh, its shining exemplar at the heart of, of this new uh, sort of harmonious relations was the national cabinet. But really, as you say before, there's now quite a lot of hostility between governments and particularly you've got the federal government kind of, uh, you know, using some pretty harsh language about Victoria and other states. Yeah, I mean, the wheels were always going to fall off. It was never a real cabinet. I mean, it was... It was a glorified coag, um, and and it served a purpose, of course, in in the context of that um, emergency, really, in 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 March and, and April, May. Um, look, Morrison, interestingly, was was aware of nineteen eighteen nineteen, um, as he said in a, I think a, an interview with Neil Mitchell um, on Melbourne radio. Um, he knew that that 
one of the key issues, if not the key issue in Australia in 1919 had been federalism, the relationship between governments and in particular between federal and, and state governments. I think his actions to some extent were informed by by that history, which is kind of encouraging for us uh, as uh, who practice history, who are historians. Mm. Um, but yeah, the, the uh, events of 1919 would also have told him that that there's just almost infinite scope for for um, conflict between governments in situations like this. And similar things happened back then. You know, state governments closed borders and wouldn't open them, and you know, you had people camping in, uh, you know, effectively quarantine areas on the borders of New South Wales and, and, and Queensland. Um, so there are a lot of echoes in the present. That said, um, the level of restriction and, and, and indeed disruption that we're seeing in 2020 is, is unprecedented. I mean, 1919, it was quite pale really by comparison. Well, 1919, the, the, the colonies have only recently come together to form the Australian state. So there's a lot of kind of residual sovereignty um, mentality of it as well as the law. Plus, we're just so much more integrated now yeah. in so many ways in communication, mm. physically in integrated, mm. people move around so much more. And there's been a whole lot of progress since 1919 in the creation of this state. And yet we see, Maria, in this um, in this manifestation of the, of, the, of the virus, we see states like Queensland and WA just basically saying, well, we are self-contained and and buggier. That's it. You know, we're not we're not interested in talking to you. We're going to. I mean, obviously, uh, they they feel they have a strong moral argument to protect the uh, the health of their citizens, and that's the end of the debate as far as they see. And so we really see this kind of um, quite clear uh, delineation of responsibility, but also we see how essentially hollow the federation is. You know, when, when it comes to a whole lot of key things, the federal government just doesn't really have much power to do much in these cases. Um, okay, I, I have I have one point and, and a question for Frank. I, I don't know. I don't. I, I I am not disturbed by the states um, going their own way. Sure, it's perverse at times, but I mean, if you look at the situation we have, we have eight jurisdictions performing very well and one struggling and basically recovering. And, um, you know, it's quite possible that if the the federation had a, a stronger centre, that the whole country might be in peril because the people at the centre might have made the wrong calls. Maybe they would have made the right calls, but they might have made the wrong calls. So I, I don't. I I really I really have found this discourse in the main media, and I've been you know going on about this for weeks now. Uh, very weird and kind of um, sort of uh, disturbing. Like yeah, there are sort of perversities, right? But these are trade offs ultimately. And I yeah, think- but what about the, the the Canberra woman who couldn't attend the funeral of her of her father? Um- you know, this is a real human Yeah, I know, I know here. that. But there would have also been just thousands of people who would have been let into Queensland. We don't hear about them. Yeah, like, but why well, is the ACT closed off to Queensland? They're the ones who have COVID. We don't. Yeah, no, I, I hear what you're saying, and I'm not trying to defend um, the Palaszczuk government's uh, decision-making. Um, you know, I think it's kind of interesting that she set up a set of administrative uh, decision-making structures which remove her from the process, which is very un-Westminster, and uh, gives her sort of no capacity for political uh, movement. And, you know, I'm, I, I don't want to... Um, 
downgrade or dismiss the distress of individuals but for every for every individual who has been denied entrance into Queensland there are people who have been protected from a virus or who have been allowed in into Queensland and I think that's actually something that we kind of need to sort of uh, sort of think about. Like, I'm not saying that this is good or ideal. We, we're, we're in extraordinary times. And I guess what I'm sort of saying is, is that we actually need to think about the silent trade-offs um, in this sort of situation. But what I want to ask Frank is, do you think it's just that in 1919, our tolerance for death was just significantly higher? Like it's before penicillin, we just had four years of war. We expect people to, to, to die more often and more frequently. You know, average life expectancy is 65. I mean, do you think that's part of, or less really, uh, than 65 years? Do you think that's part of what's going on here or? Oh, probably. I mean, Australia might have had as many as 20,000 deaths in, in, uh, of, of Spanish flu. Um, estimates vary 12 to 20. Um, which was low, of course, by international standards, lower even in terms of its rate than comparable countries such as New Zealand or South Africa. Um, so, yeah, look, I, th- I think that's right. I, I mean, my take is different from yours, Maria, I have to say. I think we're now in a, a dreadful impasse and I, I can't see how the politics of this is going to be managed um, because, you know, you, you, without Section 92 operating as it's supposed to, um, you don't really have a federation. You don't really have a commonwealth. Um, you have just a bunch of jurisdictions doing their own thing. Um, and we, we know, I mean, Anne Toomey's been interesting on this. She, she, we don't really know. Um, what the High Court is going to do with this issue, but the, the constitutional lawyers are telling us that proportionality is critical. That is that state governments, um, will very likely be deemed to have the right to, mm. to restrict border movement, um, if it's proportionate to the nature of the risk. Now, um, I'm not an epidemiologist, but I have to say that, um, when you have a situation where you have uh, single-figure new infections on both sides of the border, most of it happening far from the border um, on, uh, you know, as has been the case with New South Wales and Queensland or to take Mark's case, no infections in the ACT and no travel um, uh, to Queensland from there or um, what about Western Australia and South Australia? Mm. I mean, how can this be constitutional? I mean, where is the proportionality here? So this worries me because I think it's been... Uh, in large part driven by a kind of populist politics. We know the appeal of this. And in particular, I have to say, apologies to our listeners over in Western Australia and Queensland, but historically we know the appeal of this stuff mm. in those two states. Um, it's famous. Mm, it's famous. Um, and the two premiers concerned know that. They understand that. They feel it in their bones and they both have elections coming up. Yeah, this is Palaszczuk's path to victory, frankly. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, it was going to be a tough election. She'll probably win it. She's very popular as a result of standing up. I mean, saying the other day, I will not be bullied by the Prime Minister. I mean, the Prime Minister rang her to plead the case. Can you make a special ex- uh, exception for this young Canberran who needs to get to her father's funeral? The Premier pleads, well, I've that that's the power that exists with the Chief Medical Officer, Chief Health Officer, and... And that's the end of it. And then he stands up in state parliament and says, I will not be bullied by this prime minister. Well, you know, I mean, it really does, I think, strain the idea of one nation. And I don't mean one nation, obviously, in the pejorative sense of the political party. Um, look, we are right out of time. And I was hoping to talk about 
Donald Trump, what he knew when and and all of that, and uh, perhaps even uh, Dominique Cummings and and um, the, uh, the what is it, Operation Moonshot to uh, test 10 million people a day in, in the UK at a cost of $130 million, which... Um, we only talk yeah. about facts on this show, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> We're fact-driven. That's right. We only talk about facts, and that's certainly not a fact, at least not at this stage. Um, and I probably would have liked to have referenced to the Bar- Laro Berejiklian standoff because that was so interesting. I thought what was uh, – I'll make two quick observations about it. It was interesting that we have – I mean, they are the Premier and Deputy Premier, that's true, um, but it does, again, highlight the multiculturalism of Australia, you know, these two names, Barilara and Berejiklian. That's observation one and not a very interesting one. Observation two, perhaps a bit better, and that is that a buffy bloke tried to publicly bully and intimidate a tough woman, and she came out as a tougher woman and he came out as a buffier bloke. I thought that was uh, an undeniable outcome uh, of the of the comedy uh, that we saw playing out at the top of the New South Wales government last week. And good on Gladys Berejiklian for uh, uh, being very firm with this clown. As Maria said before, we've got Catherine Murphy talking about her essay, "The End of Certainty," uh, on um, tomorrow night here in Canberra, and that will form the uh, Democracy Sausage Extra later in the week. So keep an eye out for that. Also keep an eye out if you're in the ACT for Smart Vote ACT, which is a joint or which is a research project being run out of the School of Politics and International Relations uh, and the uh, uh, Australian Studies Institute. And uh, that's a voting advice application, which you'll be able to get in the Canberra Times and uh, you'll be able to answer questions and get matched up with candidates. It's going to be very interesting to see how that uh, how that goes in this forthcoming election on October 17. So keep your eye out for that if you're in the ACT. My thanks to Professor Frank Bongiorno, Dr. Anna Greta Hunter, and as always, Dr. Maria Taflaga. I'll be back later in the week, as mentioned. And until then, bye for now. 